Um, thanks everyone for coming. And thank you, Erin, again for being here to translate for us. And uh, lots of hellos and uh, good afternoons in the chat. So hello to all of you. Um, but I'm happy to, oh, I'm, I'm Maddie, by the way, if, if this is your first live stream. Um, I'm Maddie, I'm the Skype Scientist intern, and I'm really excited to introduce uh, Taiki, correct? Yeah, that's me. And yeah, he's going to be talking to us about uh, fall bird migration and preparing for that, as well as it seems like a lot of really cool stuff with uh, science communication and government work and environmental policy and birds in general, perhaps. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on today. Well, I'm really happy that I could do this. Um, you know, this is something that I've been seeing on social media a lot. And, you know, before we got on, I was, we were talking about how Skype, a scientist, isn't on Skype, but Zoom, and it has almost exclusively been on Zoom. Um, and how Zoom, there's a Zoom generation and now a Skype generation where I definitely feel uh, uh, no regrets to leaving Skype in the dust. Yeah, Zoom is really awesome for just the fact that I'm getting hellos from um, New Jersey and Texas and I think uh, potentially Brazil. Like we're, yeah, we're getting highs from everywhere and it seems uh, like we're reaching a wide audience today with Zoom, which is great. Oh, this is awesome. Well, cool. Um, yeah, so if you wouldn't mind, uh, tell us, I'm getting some questions about uh, if you're, if you would consider yourself an ornithologist and maybe mm -hmm. tell us about what, uh, what you do and kind of how you got to where you are. That's, that's really great. Uh, so the easy question to start, no, I do not consider myself an ornithologist. I consider myself a birder, uh, a, a significant distinguishing, uh, or a definition worth going into. Um, so I started as an environmental educator in, in Philadelphia, where I'm from, uh, and it was actually my first job out of high school, where I was conducting public education projects to connect the neighboring community to the park. And one of the ways that I would do that, one of the best vehicles I found, has been through bird watching, through birding. Generally, the experience taught me how to interpret ecology. And it was through a social justice lens because the education manager, the, my boss at the time, and now my best friend, Tony, um, is woke. <laughs> and so he you know, explained and he connected the um, ecology of the park to also the neighborhood or also to the history of the neighborhood. Uh, Cobbs Creek Environmental Center is only a few blocks away from where the move bombing happened 35 years ago now. And when we look at what the park, well, you know, when I was there five years ago, when we looked at what the park is and the relationship that neighbors have to it, we know that it is in reflection to uh, the neglect and history of police violence that um, a lot of those residents feel when they go to this park that has no street lights, no benches, no trash cans. Those are three very simple things that can welcome a community to their neighborhood park. And those things, you know, I mean, among other things were, um, you know, indicators of environmental blight. And I don't know anybody who wants to be proud of a park that's, that's in blight. But when I started working there, the park was a lot more clean and you know, it was it was fostering environmental education in a way that can bring the community together. And that was my first, you know, uh, uh, path, my first step on the path to conservation. My first assignment was a belted kingfisher where, um, you know, you got to pick up the Sibley, you got to pick up the Peterson and, and, you know, get on Audubon to look up everything you can about this bird, kind of like a book report. And, you know, you come into work the next day and then you share what you know off the top of your head, uh, just to show what you studied. And I, you know, coincidentally got to see the bird in person when I came into work the next week. It was perched atop a uh, cattail and it did its call as it crossed the creek. And that was a moment that I was so present for that I didn't really know that it meant that much at the time. I was just like, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, if this is what I do for work not bad um 
but I didn't realize how important that was to connecting me on this path of conservation where now I work at the National Audubon Society as the government affairs coordinator. That basically means I'm a bird lobbyist. Um, and I'm not the lobbyist in the sense of like, you know, I bust into congressional offices and I'm like, make sure your boss votes for the birds or, or we won't vote for them. That's not at all what I would imagine doing. Um, but instead, I um, take out members of Congress and congressional staff on bird walks to, um, you know, I want to say in meetings, you can easily talk about numbers and, and projects on the table and things that you can put on paper and you can slide that back and forth on the table. But something special happens when you can really, you know, go outside and connect to places that are important to them and important to birds. Um, and, you know, with congressional staff, which are the walks I've done uh, more exclusively, or at least, you know, until I broke my ankle in January, yeah, but even before coronavirus, it, it was something else. But um, <laughs> I, you know, got to lead walks with congressional staff and every single staffer, whether it was their first time birding. And of course, if this was, you know, a couple times in for them, they all had a story about a bird. You know, they everybody had a story that they could connect with. And that's not something that we would share if we were in a meeting discussing numbers and projects and all these other things. So having that connection has been really important, not just to our organizational reputation on the Hill, but also to show that birders and, you know, like the idea of being a birder isn't, uh, you know, the same qualifications of an ornithologist, but it is someone who just appreciates birds, you know, or, or the places that they need. And as you see, I have plenty of birds in my view. I have birds on my shirt. I have the vermilion flycatcher over there. I have a sage grouse and um, let's see, and a duck <laughs> and a hawk or a golden eagle. We so. did get some comments about um, the hawk migration. Someone mentioned that their uh, teacher and they're uh, like preparing and excited about the hawk migration. And someone asked, uh, yeah, if you watch birds of prey, specifically the red-tailed hawk ever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's a very common one. And in fact, I would say that that's a model hawk to observe and understand its behavior, understand its, um, you know, the way it flies. And, you know, if you're lucky, you can hear the call sometimes. And when you, you know, can observe this, this bird and interact and see how it interacts with the environment, one of the more interesting things I found has been, you know, in my own neighborhood in D.C., there was a hawk, you know, just circling around the home in the neighborhood and, uh, you know, making its call. And, you know, everyone's listening to that. But I was like, what you're not hearing is all the other little birds. All the other little birds stopped chirping because there's this giant hawk asking for lunch and no one wants to volunteer. Understandable. Very understandable. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's something that yeah, red-tailed hawks, I, I hope you see a lot of them, and I hope you can see them do, you know, some of the really interesting and engaging things. Yeah, I guess I'm curious with that, since we seem to have someone just said they love red-tailed hawks a lot. Um, what's, like, one of their cool behaviors? Because I've definitely seen them cycle, like, circle around, but mm -hmm. do they do other unique things that would help identify them? Yeah, so I learned that a juvenile red-tailed hawk and a... Is it? A, I think it's a juvenile female red-tailed hawk looked exactly like a male Cooper's hawk, and it is the. I think it's like the occipiter complex of the most difficult birds to identify because that red-tailed hawk, yeah, it does have that red tail, you know. But you can't always rely on that to identify it. When you can see that same red-tailed hawk go through, you know, different level layers of plumage or if you can see that same red-tailed hawk in a different region, it will look so completely different. Um, so I, I would say, you know, again, it, it's up to, you know, how you want to do it, but observing the red-tailed hawk in different locations, you can really see the uh, variety and diversity of plumage that it actually has. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, back to what you were, you were talking about, um, taking uh, political figures on walks uh, to kind of get them in touch with nature and get them in touch with the birds that uh, that are important in the area. Someone asked, uh, who is the most enjoyable bird walk with? Or maybe a couple if you can't decide on just one. Mm -hmm. um, well, 
I, I like I said, I haven't taken a member out on a bird walk where it was just me and the member uh, for two reasons. One reason is um, often these walks should be and are conducted by constituents, people who are from those areas who know those birds and who vote for that person. Um, I mostly supply the talking points, schedule the things, make sure the logistics are all set up and just do all the stuff behind the scenes. And, you know, if there is an opportunity, I do say I would love to volunteer. Um, but my, my uh, assistance hasn't been required uh, for, you know, that one reason that we want to prioritize constituent voices. Um, but for the second reason, um, which, you know, is pretty important, um, the timing of me working at Audubon uh, coincided with the blue wave so there was just like a ton of people to say hi to and um you know new people to say hi to uh and and so you know doing bird walks necessarily wasn't in the uh, high priority of the political calculus um, but it is something that you know again develops that relationship with the office develops the relationship um with the member and birds um, but I do have a funny story about a bird walk, not that I, that I was on, but one that, you know, I, I tell in folklore and I'm not going to say who the member is because at this point I actually don't remember, but, and it will be impossible to find out, but apparently, uh, you know, he was, you know, coming along on this bird walk and, uh, I don't know if he was, you know, pressed on time or anything like that, but, you know, they would go up and, you know, teach them how to use the binoculars and, okay, there goes a bird. And, you know, he'd look and be like, oh, wow, that's really cool. And they're okay, they're, you know, and then, you know, they do the talking and all that. And at the end of the walk, um, when they're looking at pictures of the event, his lens and his binoculars were closed the entire time. So he was just saying whatever. <laughs> he was just saying, yeah, I see it seeing nothing and so in all the pictures they had to go in and photoshop the lint the caps off that's it was uh yeah oh yeah that's <laughs> and also like what do you say when you're on the walk you're like um excuse me <clears throat> you you're you're not seeing you're lying <laughs> like you're lying you're just lying oh my gosh yeah i i'm uh so i'm more of like a lab biologist so i definitely have had that when you like look in a microscope and it's you can't see they're like look at this thing and you're like yeah okay oh lord so like, <laughs> caps on i'd hope someone would ask <laughs> yeah you know just something to uh think about you know we tried to do the the one-on-one -on -one binocular use which is you know it's 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 whatever you put into it that's that's birding birding you're gonna get out of it what you put into it <laughs> so a pro tip for any uh aspiring birders out there always remember to take the lens cap off and make sure you don't lose it right oh yeah also they're they're they are important as they are you know part of what keeps the uh lens clean and safe so whenever i'm not using mine i put them on but when you're birding and you keep these on you you won't be able to see anything yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's hilarious i love that i love that story um so we're getting some questions about um what your favorite type of bird is, since we talked pretty fondly of red-tailed hawks, but mm -hmm. yeah, we have a lot of questions on what's your favorite type of bird and why, and maybe like the kinds of specific birds that you study or that are in your area. Mm -hmm. So uh, my top three birds, Northern Cardinal, Belted Kingfisher, and Green Jay. Northern Cardinal, year-round, no matter where it is, uh, and, it, and it covers a lot of the continent, that car that it can just look brilliant male or female first year or juvenile is just a really great looking bird and um you know i think it inspires art it's a, one of those birds that i think looks great uh you know in the dead of winter there's snow on the ground not a leaf you can't see any leaves get rid of the leaves and all you see is just like the cardinal whether it's male or female you see the bright brilliant you know of the of the male red or you you know you see the female a lot more subtle, less gaudy, but, you know, she still has that really bright uh, red beak that, like, that really, you know, shoots out with, like, the black mask situation. Um, Belted Kingfisher, well, that was just, you know, that's my spark bird, and that's the bird that really got me started in all this, and it's the female Belted Kingfisher, too, so if I were to get a tattoo, the Belted Kingfisher female is on that list of birds, so that's why the Belted Kingfisher is there. It just shares two lists, you know, you got to 
Um, and then the green jay. The green jay is because for me, that's like the most crazy bird that I've ever seen before. And it was a bird that I almost didn't see when I was in McAllen, Texas at the um, Focus on Diversity Conference. Uh, you know, we went on a little bird trip. I was actually with Dr. J. Drew Lenham, and we thought that, you know, I mean, we saw a lot of great things, don't get me wrong. Actually, and I do need the eBird list for that. So I, I should probably hit those guys up because, um, yeah, again, right when we thought the field trip was going to end, you know, it just swoops down on this branch, probably 20 feet away still and almost at eye level. And it was just an incredible sight. It's a little bit bigger than a blue jay. Obviously, it has green, but it has this gradient of like yellow to blue and black. Google it. It's a really fantastic looking bird. It almost looks painted, almost like the cedar waxwing, which the cedar waxwing is in my top five, but I'm going to give you my top three to save on the politics. Um, and, and as far as like birds that I study, I think that I would say I focus a lot on migratory birds. So the migratory bird per, uh, uh, the migratory bird treaty act was one of the, you know, I guess spark birds for the National Audubon Society, if you can think of it that way, where that legislation, that treaty with, um, you know, the United States, Canada, uh, Mexico, Russia, Japan, um, that, that treaty was the first advocacy action that, you know, these folks took who, uh, you know, used Audubon's name to start this organization for bird conservation. And we understand that, you know, birds are a barometer for environmental conditions. And, you know, protecting the full life cycle of the bird, uh, well, that leads us to a heavy focus on how they migrate. You know, we have a lot of science that lets us know through bird banding, through, um, you know, just knowing where they nest and, and breeding atlases. We know, you know, we're learning a lot about migratory birds and we're learning a lot about what their habitats needs are. And, um, you know, that's the kind of stuff that when I am in those meetings with, uh, congressional staff and members of Congress, those are the things that I'm talking about. I'm talking about how um, the life cycle of the bird is connected to uh, seeing its value as a barometer for environmental conditions. I mean, I'm also a birder myself, but, you know, there are also indicator species that are very, very important, uh, you know, on the ecological chain. So birds are just one of those things. And I think, you know, uh, I'm a little biased birds are really cool you know because look i have a bird shirt i have a bird bag i have again the wood duck and the, and the golden eagle sage grouse you know birds are cool so you know so i think it, it has those two effects i mean honestly this too imagine you know you're a member of congress you get all these emails from all these folks asking for about all these things um very important things too we just happen to have our thing wrapped in a bird package, you know? So we know that we're a part of a bigger movement and, you know, I think it's important to realize that um, what we can advance in environmental conservation is also what we're advancing for humanity. So it, it's just nice that, you know, in that bigger picture of things, we get to talk about birds. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, and we're getting some questions about, so I'm actually unfamiliar with the green jay as well, but I quickly Googled it and I wanted to make sure I'm going to share the right photo before I share it. Uh, they kind of have a black throat and like a bit, a bit, a little bit of blue on the top of their head. Sounds about right. Okay. We will, I will share this really quick so everyone can see uh, what we're talking about. So this is uh, the Audubon website that takes oh, yeah. mentioning. And yeah, they're really pretty. I've never, I've never seen these before, but I just wanted to show everyone because we were getting a lot of questions about like, what is a, what is a green jay? What is a green jay? <laughs> so um, yeah, definitely check out this like autobond.org website, y'all. And yeah, and actually that lists the climate vulnerability on the birds. Actually, could you scroll down on that a little yeah, bit? Yeah. So a lot of this is, uh, so McAllen, Texas is like the southeast corner of Texas, five miles from the Mexican uh, border. So like, of course, I you know, that's why it was so surprising that I initially wasn't going to see it because they're just so common in that area. Um, but this actually has their conservation status, you know, like what science tells us about how climate change is affecting their migratory path. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is really cool, you guys. So definitely um, check out check out this website and you can see 
these like different, you can even see uh, climate threats facing this specific bird. So you yeah. can kind of look up, uh, you can look up your favorite bird and see. Yeah, really any bird. Yep. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. I've, uh, I'm new to, I've recently had some friends that are really into birding and I'm very new to this whole game. Um, it is a game. <laughs> I like uh, reptiles a lot and I work wow. with marine invertebrates. Um, oh. But I think, I mean, birds are dinosaur relatives. So they, of course. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I guess we're related. I mean, don't, I, I'll accept a herper before I f accept a fish person. I don't okay. understand the fish people. <laughs> like, fish? What? For, um, for everyone's they poop context, where they swim. Yeah, yeah. There's a, a, there's a big uh, scientist Twitter debate over bird versus fish. <laughs> So that's the the context behind that. There's a lot of uh, scientists, are, some scientists are very tied to their organism, um, and they've had this debate going on for a while. Yeah, it's, got, it's friendly, you know, it's a friendly competitive thing because, yeah. you know, it's kind of like sports teams where, you know, you just grew up being an Eagles fan, and so you like birds versus growing up and being a Dolphins fan, so you like fish, like, I, I, yeah, or maybe mammals. The mammal people—that's that, a Twitter that I've been getting into lately. But but you know you can get one of those mammalogists on here soon. And actually, Black Mammalogist Week is coming up in September, so that's something to look forward to. Awesome. Yeah, I I I, I do enjoy a good mammal too. I feel like <laughs> a good are, mammal. <laughs> mammals are a little bit simpler sometimes to ID. Birds are just so birds are so unique. It's like mm -hmm. and they're so fast. You gotta like quickly point figure them out. Um, yeah, I feel like yeah. having a a skilled birder with you always really helps. Um, or just talking right now to you, get some tips. Yeah, and that's what we're learning. Um, and we did get a question talking about birding. Um, what's your favorite app to ID birds? My favorite app to ID birds is totally not sponsored, but it is the Audubon app. <laughs> and that's because I have an Android phone, but if I had an iPhone, I would download the $25 Sibley app. Um, and that's because that app is like an investment into not just understanding birding, but understanding birds. Because there's just a different level of knowledge that you can appreciate when you can know the bird, you know, like I said, observing their behavior is, is part of that, you know, not just looking at the bird, but seeing it, you know, just going another level. And that's an app that can really, you know, where you can really enjoy that. Um, it was also an app that I used as an environmental educator that, you know, we would have on like a big iPad and, you know, because it was just easy to see, very, very illustrative and the field marks were already pointed out it made it just so much easier to connect that with, you know, anybody. Um, cool. And, and, and typically, you know, and this is just for me, some of the difficulties I have and the Audubon app, app uses pictures. Um, so it's not like a deterrent, but, you know, often pictures can be a little uh, um, off, you know, because that can be the perfect light to see that bird, but that may not be the light that you're seeing that bird. Um, it may not always point out the field marks, like the specific identifying uh, patterns or, or, or marks on the bird that will help you identify it. Um, but the thing that I found most valuable is playing the sound from the app. And um, they also have sound waves, so you can visualize uh, sound wave. Well, I think they have that. Well, oh, no, no, the Audubon app doesn't have sound waves. But I know that eBird does, um, the website eBird.org. But without apps, I think that the best really, like, you know, if you're looking for, like, a device to help you identify birds, using a notebook and a notepad, or a notebook and a notepad, this thingy, what's this, lapis, uh, pen, um, using one of these and, and just trying to sketch out what that bird looked like. Um, is a really good way to practice seeing those details and keeping the, and retaining those details to memory because you know those are the things that you start to put together to identify what that bird is um, and then you'll realize that you can become quicker at it because now you're like okay if I know if I see this this and this it must be this bird um, and and then you start to understand from there what common birds you have in your regular you know, vicinity. And then when you get your common birds down, 
that's when really crazy things start to happen. Now it's migration. And then, you know, your regular birds that you're, that you've been seeing for the last three months over the summer, you know, from it being a group of 12 birds, now it's a group of maybe 30 birds because, you know, so many folks are coming in saying hi and, you know, passing through. That's why migratory birds are so important. You know, it really uh, not just changes the experience for the birder, um, but it's also like a huge, you know, global thing to be connected to that so many other animal species are doing in their own ways. Yeah. Yeah. No. So it sounds like, like, uh, which is goofy, but like the best app might be just having a notebook and a pencil and kind of like, I'm trying to figure out how to draw, just make notes. Um, but the other ones you, so you mentioned Autobahn does have their own app and there's mm -hmm. also eBird. And okay. if you really maybe like build up those birding skills and then go for that, that one that you can oh, wait. Yeah. Autobahn app. Okay. Yeah. That seems really cool. So yeah, I, the people that are like, what's the app really excited. Uh, check out the Autobahn app. It looks like, like, just like that page I showed y'all, um, they have an app that will have all the information and um, maybe just bring a notebook and figure out how to draw the birds you like. Yeah. And, and also it's, it's always so cool to start a field journal which is basically what that is, um, where, yeah, you are writing down and describing what you're seeing, what you're observing, what you're hearing, what you're feeling, what the weather was like, even the day it is, you know, and then you start to realize that you can look at that and see that now you're starting to keep track of the migratory birds because you're like, well, you know, every fall on this day or around in this week, I see these many birds. And then, you know, hopefully the, those amount of birds increase or the diversity of those birds are sustained um, and climate change doesn't win out because the unfortunate reality that, you know, Audubon projects on the climate visualizer, which is something that we just touched on, um, it shows how the migratory path of those birds will, will shift or how the uh, range for that bird to mate or the, the, the range for that bird to migrate will, will shift either you know, further away from, you know, wherever you are, or will just shrink because their populations will do it. Yeah, um, talking about migrating uh, birds, someone earlier meant, asked, like they had a specific thing for you, have you ever been to Cape May, New Jersey in the fall to watch bird migration? They said it's really awesome. No, oh, I absolutely agree. I actually had to, or uh, had to, I actually had the opportunity to hear from Richard Crosley actually give a lecture from his garage about, you know, some of the things that I touched on about understanding field marks and defining the topography of the bird, understanding like the top of the head versus the back of the head versus the nape versus the throat versus the neck. And it's just like understanding and, you know, seeing the breakdown and the uh, definitions of what you're seeing in the bird can really help you break down how to identify it, especially if it's a brand new bird. When you see a bird for the first time, then you don't know how to identify. But if you just know how to look at a bird, you can just take from your memory or from your field journal what you saw, and and just you know go to the uh, go to your you know, um, and then you just go to your Sibley guide, and then you're just like, well, let's see, what did I see here? It was a uh, um, oh wow, what a what a page to turn on, Vermilion flycatcher. That's a great one. That's awesome. Yeah, it's yeah. also the oh, it's I also the bird I have over there. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, I I found that um, I've seen people with the Sibley field guide. I also I don't know if your thoughts differ, but I like the Peterson field guides. Uh, they're mm -hmm. smaller. Mm -hmm. um, field guides I think are really cool because again, like you mentioned, the pictures sometimes can be misleading, but I feel like it helps maybe just kickstart your brain to remember what it looks like. Yeah. Um, and also like the different habitats that you can see it. Often these, you know, the Sibley guide, as you see, it doesn't really have the bird in its habitat. It's just like the bird floating in white air. I mean, it might describe the different places that you could see it, but, you know, the advantage of, of seeing the bird in a picture is that you're often seeing it in its natural habitat or seeing it like the black and white warbler. If you ever see a picture of a black and white warbler, it's, it should be on a tree trunk because that's very often where you would see the bird. Yeah, and we do have um, a couple questions then about like how to be a birder for community science and maybe like some tips and tricks of um, learning birds and IDing for sounds. Someone mentioned uh, 
that they do ornithology for Science Olympiad. So they want to get some tips from you. Oh, wow. That sounds awesome. Well, first thing, uh, great use of the word community science over citizen science, which may be uh, or had been popularized for, for very good reasons. But um, obviously, you're maybe not so obvious, but the term citizen almost makes it seem that, you know, a national identity has to be claimed or required to participate in this. So community science, you know, is a very welcome term. Thank you for using it and helping it, you know, expand. Uh, two of the things that come to mind when uh, you say community science and birding, one is the um, Climate Watch Project, which is something Audubon does, where um, there is a certain path that, like, we expect uh, uh, eastern bluebirds to fly on. And, well, and, and it's because bluebirds are especially sensitive to climate threats. Um, so when we see things happen to them, when we see things happen to their populations or where they nest, we know that, you know, adverse effects are, you know, very describable. Um, and that's, you know, some of the science that we use to, you know, then feed into that climate visualizer, but also what we talk to members of Congress about. But the Climate Watch Project is basically a path where, like, you know, like, you know, it could be a path, it could be a trail, it could be, you know, walking down a couple blocks, but you just try to count as many bluebirds as you see. And it, there's a website, I forgot the name of the website, but it's on audubon.org, uh, Climate Watch. And then the second one, which is one that is over 100 or almost 100 years old, it's, well, definitely over 100 years old, the Christmas bird count. And the Christmas bird, bird count, count, oh yeah, that one is, um, it happens between not not exactly on Christmas, but it happens you know from mid uh, December to early January, where it's kind of like a census of sorts, where you just go out, you have a certain territory, a certain given area, and then you just count every single bird you see in that area, every single bird, and um, that data you know does go to uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, the Mount Olympus of bird science, if you will. <laughs> to uh, you know, be used in in a lot of ways for that we understand, um, you know, and that's a non-migratory bird season typically, um, or at least for songbirds. But it helps us understand the birds that are most often you know nesting here, the birds that are here year round, um, and um, I know that there are some other efforts similar to the Christmas bird count, um, the Midwinter Bird Census in Philadelphia, administered by the Delaware Valley Ornithological Club. Um, the uh, Maryland, D.C. Uh, bird Atlas, uh, breeding bird atlas that's that's put together by the Maryland Ornithological Society, I believe. Somebody should quote me on that. <laughs> um, the uh, you know, and I. It, it's those measures of doing bird counting, you know, that um, really help the data of, you know, the science interpretation and the crunching through the numbers that, that, that those folks do on that side. And that can be as easy as, you know, again, signing up with those organizations or downloading the eBird app. The eBird app is, you know, one of these little clever apps um, that I don't think is required for birding, but when you talk about doing community science, you know, nothing really gets better than this. You start a checklist and you just start to, as you identify birds, you know, put down what bird you saw, how many times, or not how many times you've seen the bird, but how many birds did you see? Um, what was it doing? You know, it has special codes, like if it's carrying nesting material, that means it's probably building a nest. You know, if you see that same bird but maybe that bird is like a juvenile or a first year like that's interesting data too and it you know and then ask you to you know if you want to or if you can break all that down um, because again that's the data that goes to uh, you know Cornell Lab of Ornithology that gives us that big understanding of what's happening to birds. Yeah that's really awesome um, and yeah like so but, so it sounds like we have a lot of like app resources, which is really great. Um, but I guess for like memorizing, I guess memorizing is hard, but like learning 
different kinds of birds, like how to just kind of like look at a bird and know what it is. Like, did you have any like little tips or did it just take time to figure that out? It does take time. Uh, and but the time that you should take, you, you should focus on bird shape, uh, bird size or color or, or I mean, and maybe the sound, maybe the sound is second because you know, you can focus on the sound and sit in a park or just sit outside and just focus on bird sound and focus on how many different birds you hear, what directions you're hearing them from. When you're hearing them, are they flying? Are they perched? Are they saying it in response to another bird? You know, these are things that you can really focus on and just sit down with. Not necessarily will that help you identify the bird if if you're not um you know referencing it to what that bird sound is but it is a really good way to start to listen and engage with nature but bird shape is often or i i i see is like the best way to identify a bird because literally no bird has the same shape you know like there isn't a default shape for a warbler you know there isn't a template i mean typically they are small yes and sometimes and most of them are yellow but that's not descriptive enough to let me know the difference between a blackburnian warbler and um a yellow warbler you know like that that tells me oops okay that's nothing that tells me nothing um so bird shape is is really really key bird shape also goes into how it looks when it's perched as well as how it looks when it's flying a turkey vulture for example you know you know you see it as big arm you know big wingspans and the, and the arms are always up like a v that's how i see it that shape is very easy for me to see and so i'm like oh okay that's a turkey vulture and similar to uh other soaring birds you know you got the red-tailed hawk um that you know its tail is a lot more fanned out because it's getting more air so that it can doesn't have to work as hard to flap um it's those small, you know, accumulation of details that, you know, when you start with shape, you can really start to break down the details of what that bird could be, you know, especially when you don't know what the bird is. There are also interesting things in seeing the shape that uh, sometimes you'll see a crest on some birds and sometimes you won't. Uh, the ruby crown kinglet, for example, you won't see the ruby crown unless the bird gets really excited. And it, you know, obviously the ruby crown is very bright and, you know, easy to see, but it also changes the shape of the bird a little bit because now it has a bit of a crest. So bird shape is, is a really important thing to look at when you're starting to think about the birds that you're seeing. And again, focus on the common birds. You know, that could be the first six or seven birds that you see and interact with every day. Um, you know, and keep that list and really think about how their behavior changes through the year. Gotcha. Cool. That sounds uh, hopefully super helpful for um, our person that was asking about uh, learning how to ID the birds in their area. Um, yeah, yeah. Start with shape. Yeah. And um, I do have a question that I'm, we're going to put this to the test, the, the, the start with the shape and ID this bird. Someone right. asked, um, what type of bird do you think Woodstock is from the Snoopy comics? And if not a specific bird, what kind of bird do you think that he was modeled after? It's a really great question. I would say my first thought is warbler because it's a little yellow bird, you know, and obviously not all warblers are little yellow birds and um, his, mm -hmm. his head shape is a little, uh, it's a lot bigger than its body. <laughs> <laughs> so that one, that's the part that makes it a little harder to say which type of warbler, mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> but because it's all yellow, I'm going to give it the yellow warbler. If I were to guess. See, that was, yeah, that was fast. The, just the fact that the color, the shape, I, mean, mm -hmm. I don't know what kind of sound uh, Woodstock makes, but. Yeah, I was going to say that would be helpful too. Maybe that could break it down into which, which kind. Um, but yeah, yeah, I would say some type of small yellow warbler. Awesome. Cool. Um, and yeah, thank you for, uh, I think it was Grant that had that question. Um, thank you so much. So we do have a couple questions about specific birds. Um, have mm. you ever seen a peregrine falcon? And then what is the rarest North American bird? Do you know? And have you seen it? Okay. I love that second question uh, because that, that second question is a matter of debate. But I will tell you the rarest bird I've seen. But first, the peregrine falcon. Mm. Yes, I've seen a peregrine falcon in flight. 
not in like the 300 mile per hour flight, but in regular bird, regular bird flight. Um, I also know that in the city of Philadelphia, there's a peregrine falcon that's actually nesting in the uh, city hall building. And, you know, it is a, or it was a, you know, some type of special ceremony. A friend of mine, Tony, the one actually who was the education manager for my first job and now my best friend, uh, you know, he had the opportunity to actually clean the nest with the mayor. And, you know, they wore hard hats and they had brooms to like, you know, help get some of the junk out of there. Um, it was like a cool moment, you know, uh, for, for peregrine falcons. And, but I will say peregrine falcons are the fastest moving gravity assisted thing on the planet. But hummingbirds are faster than peregrine falcons relative to size. Relative to size and shape, hummingbirds travel faster than peregrine falcons. And also keep in mind, peregrine falcons use gravity to help them out. I will say, to add to that, now that I think about it, the mallard, the mallard duck, that is the fastest horizontally flying duck of all of them. So if every if everyone was just flying on a normal speed, the duck's normal speed is faster than everybody else's normal speed. Interesting. Some, some fast bird facts. That's why you don't mess, don't mess with uh, mallards. Yeah, yeah. Also, that's why you don't mess with ducks. It's just, ooh, there, there are battles you can win and then there's battles you can choose. <laughs> and hopefully you choose not to go into that one. Um, so the rarest bird in North America, um, you know, I would say it would have to be something that I, you know, and the idea of rare, meaning has it been observed just once? There's plenty of birds that have been observed just once. And some of those reasons could be because of storms. So, you know, the recent hurricane we had, um, as destructive as it was, and, you know, as much tragic, you know, uh, much of a tragedy as it was to, to so many families, there are birders who look at those storms and see that that's an opportunity to get a rare bird because that will take a bird off its regular track by a lot sometimes. And um, the fate of that bird often is tragic as well because there's a reason that it migrates a certain way and throwing it off that migratory route, it's probably not gonna find the resources it needs or the uh, right shelter it needs. So that's a bird that, you know, you can see reported in places, but um, that might have coincided with a large storm and, you know, not always a hurricane, but just a large storm sometimes can blow a bird off its track. Uh, so that could be rare in the, you know, in that sense. But then there's also rare uh, in the continental sense where there are birds that typically migrate from India to Russia that might end up in the United States somehow. And it's just like, how? No clue. Maybe it got on a shipping container and then like nested and was okay for like two months or, you know, however long it gets, you know, I don't know. Um, with all that being said, the rarest bird I've seen, you know, I feel terrible because I, I feel like I don't remember where I saw it or the name of it, but it was some type of waterfowl that everybody was going nuts about. And I was, I was much younger in my birding journey. And this is why I regret not keeping a field journal because it was just like such a moment uh, for me to understand that this bird, you know, only comes here once a year. And this is the type of rare bird that I, that I think about when I, when you say rare bird, it comes here once a year. And it's usually one or two sightings that people get of this bird within this very uh, small time frame, But that bird comes here for the habitat. And mm -hmm. that lets me know how important that habitat is to this migratory bird, because this bird is literally just stopping in at their favorite Waffle House to, to come in and order their favorite drink and then leave. If we have a chance to say hi to it, that's something special. Yeah, that's awesome. I like, I like that uh, description of it's, it's on its little road trip, it's stopping, and then it's yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, and it's the favorite Waffle House, so of course it's going to stop by. <laughs> um, what, did it, what did it look like? Do you have like a, do any kind of memory people are asking? Like, oh, man. I remember I was cold, and I was like, <laughs> we're not going to see this bird. Um, I, or where were you again? Oh, this was in Philadelphia okay. at um, John Hines Wildlife National Refuge or in Cape May. 
<laughs> in the Pine Barrens. The type of habitat was like marshy, but it was like cold outside. So I have no idea what we were looking for. <laughs> it was, I mean, it it's part traumatic experience of me being really cold outside, but then also part of like being a birder, <laughs> you know, <laughs> where it's just like, I was probably up at 6 a.m. that morning. And as, as miserable as I'm kind of sounding, that those are the type of experiences that really connect me to nature and really remind me, you know, not just how lucky I am that I get to experience it in this way, but it also reminds me that I want other people to in their own way. And, uh, you know, being an advocate for birds, I'm also an advocate for people enjoying birds. And that takes a lot of forms, you know, and most recently that was organizing Black Birders Week with um, you know, some of the black scientists that you may have seen recently on this show, uh, as well as on Twitter. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, and then someone's asking about, uh, have you been to Australia before? They said there's a lot of really cool birds there. I hadn't had the opportunity to travel to Australia, but it is something that I am looking forward to. I mean, I know that the fires have you know, decimated wildlife in, in a lot of ways, but there are so many efforts and so many, uh, you know, good efforts that are going into uh, restoring that and, and seeing that wildlife conservation, you know, is, is a priority when we're thinking about how Australia uh, recovers, because a lot of those places were, were you know, affecting, very effective uh, in, in hurting wildlife. I would travel, or I almost did travel, to the mountainous regions of Portugal and Spain um, to do like a travel birding trip with David Lindo, I believe. And I never, it just didn't, I didn't have a passport. It didn't happen. And I just, just like, ugh. But, uh, you know, it, it's definitely, traveling around the world to look at birds is, is definitely a, a bigger life goal for me. Because that's a really, you know, neat way to feel connected to this bigger thing, you know, and I think obviously there's a lot of ways to do it, but to go and travel to see, I mean, especially going to South America, that's where the birds are for most of the year anyway, you know, to go there, that would be, that would be quite a treat. Yeah, that's where um, I had a friend that uh, is there, they like did their, I don't remember what they did their PhD in specifically, but they're mm -hmm. like. I think they would categorize themselves as an ornithologist and they were very, very excited about the birds in Peru and kind of got me on board because, because they were so excited, nice. um, which was really cool. Like I got to hold a hummingbird. Um, yeah, we oh, caught, wow. we caught them in uh, so a lot of times when people are doing like sampling and stuff, they'll just for everyone to, um, have a better picture. They'll set up these nets so that they can catch the birds safely and then ID them and then release them again. Um, and I got to hold the hummingbird, but uh, what I learned is hummingbirds get really scared. Um, so when you're holding it, it will kind of play dead. And so when I opened my hand, it just laid there for a second and I was very nervous that I had hurt it, um, but it flew away. I tilted my hand and then it immediately flew away. So I wow. had like a short second of, Oh no, but it, yeah, I agree that, well, like it sounds like traveling to see birds, of course, is like really cool. There's amazing birds in your backyard that you might not even, we have a scrub jay in my backyard that will visit to pick up the lunch scraps every once in a while. So. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we did, so we got a question a bit ago uh, that I was kind of waiting to see if the conversation led there, but I don't know anything about um, birds in space. Have they ever taken birds into space before? Hmm. I don't know. I imagine it'd have to be a small bird. I think the closest reference I have to a bird and, or at least something with wings and an astronomical body that isn't terrestrial is the story of Icarus flying into the sun. Oh yeah. <laughs> Outside of that, um, I think it would be interesting to know what bird hits the highest elevation, you know, and, and then, you know, to be like, is that the, the bird that is closest to space? True. Um, or even if like, so people have taken animals up in spaceships, but I'm like, I, I don't know if we'd need 
to, I'm like trying to imagine, like, I guess you could just see how anti-gravity affects birds specifically. So, yeah, I would say if the question is how would a bird interact in a weightless environment, I think the bird, well, I think it'd be interesting to see how the bird navigates itself because, you know, birds like to do that thing, like, like a gyroscope with their head. Um, I think that would, that would be interesting to see, but also one thing to look out for is like feathers going everywhere because like normally you know when we're on earth and gravity is pulling in one direction uh, those feathers know exactly where that is and they can hold on more easily but i feel like if you put a bird in a weightless environment it's just going to start flapping everywhere and then like those little particles from the wings are just going to start flying all these different places then you know they has to move slow and then you got to get it and then uh, you know I just feel like it's a mess. That's what I'm saying. It's going to be a mess. Don't put a bird in space. That's, I guess that's what I'm saying. Someone, um, I, someone just mentioned that maybe a hummingbird has been to space. Uh, I might need to do Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I Humming do love birds hummingbirds. I, yeah, the fact that I got to hold one, that was like a little, like now I have this connection with hummingbirds I see, even if they're not even the same species. Um, but that's really cool. I, I have no idea. I'd love to hear... Um, I'm going to have to do some research and maybe uh, some people can interact with our Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and let us know birds in space. Have they been there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> have they been there? Um, so I have a couple more questions. Um, and then I, I Skype a scientist. We always have like a couple questions at the end for you. Um, mm -hmm. But I want to make sure I can get everyone's questions answered first. Um, I think this person is located in Massachusetts. Uh, they asked, so since you're from the East Coast area, I don't know if you've been to Massachusetts, but do you know kind of the, the strangest bird you've seen in Massachusetts? I actually have a friend who lives in Boston, and um, we had the opportunity to uh, do a little bit of birding uh, in and around the Kennedy Museum. Uh, you know where that is they're from or they're from Massachusetts I, and not from Boston I don't know if I I'm like <laughs> nodding as I'm thinking um, <laughs> I personally don't I lived in Pennsylvania but that's the only east coast uh, mm -hmm. upper east coast I've lived in the craziest bird then that I saw wasn't really crazy and wasn't really seen it was tasted it was my first time I had Pekin duck and and that was that was a great experience. <laughs> so for Massachusetts, there's that. <laughs> Eat some birds there instead. <laughs> um, and a quick back to the space. We had someone say in the seventies, I guess Russia took quail eggs to space, um, and maybe Americans have taken chicken embryos. So maybe no flapping birds, but not yet. Yeah, because I can imagine um, they wouldn't. Yeah, I don't know if they would enjoy. Uh, no gravity yeah yeah i mean but it, i guess it, it's worth making the reference i guess if if we if, if not a weightless environment perhaps we can put birds on the moon that would be cool they birds just, on the moon 2020 maybe they can fly a lot maybe they can fly a lot higher they're kind of just balancing for a second and then exactly kind of birds uh, on the moon <laughs> what are those uh there's that specific bird species that moves between uh the ox maybe uh, they like kind of the waves and they kind of balance they use the air current. yeah 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 i think yeah that's a sea that's a tough seabird yeah oh yeah probably yeah i'm imagining that but they're just hovering birds on mm -hmm. the moon that's <laughs> birds on the moon um that's awesome uh all right and it looks like our questions are wrapping up um i do so i i we're having some questions about um basically like scientists being able to come and speak in classrooms and I believe if you visit our different social media outlets I think our um our poll for signing up for classrooms for scientists to come speak is on Saturday so keep an eye out for that and I will like repost and share all of that um because it sounds like some people are maybe more interested in learning about birds in the future I don't know if you're on our database for I don't know if I am either you should get on do? yeah yeah Pretty cool um and so if anyone that's unfamiliar, besides just the live streams, we also do Skype a scientist uh, lets um, scientists come into classrooms and kind of give these, it's almost like a closer interaction with what we're doing now. So you can ask questions and uh, like learn more about different people in science. Uh, and it's a really cool opportunity. So um, 
for the for the person that asked about that, we'll get that poll up soon and uh, definitely sign up and put in that you're interested in finding someone interested in birding and we'll try to connect you with, uh, with someone. So, um, and then now I've uh, got some questions for you from that everyone gets asked. Uh, so our first question is, is pretty simple. Is there anything that you wish that you would have been asked today? So am I a scientist? I don't think so. It's a definition that I like to use liberally, but I do use, uh, you know, in a lot of political context. So I do have a bias towards the connotation of, of what it means. And so in that bias, I may not personally feel that I identify as a scientist in that same way. But scientist is not the white lab coat, you know, situation. It's not always in the lab. It's not always publishing a paper or having doctor or master's somewhere in your name. Science is a process. It's part of the journey of engaging with knowledge. And I hope that everyone feels inspired to take that journey and, and just see where it takes them. And, you know, if it does take you to a lab, if it does take you to, you know, working in the field, looking for a nest, you know, if that's where it takes you, so be it. But also if it takes you to Capitol Hill where you're, you know, seeing what the science outcomes are to, advocate for legislation, then, you know, I think that that's a nice place to see it as well. I'm also biased towards that because that's kind of where I'm at. I think that that's important um, for all the, all, I mean, all the points you just made is that we do need scientists involved in policy and government uh, because we kind of want to have that, like you want to, science is important everywhere. So, and yeah, you're not, scientists are not just in the lab coat uh, like a white guy with the mustache. That's like always yeah. the Einstein picture. I don't know if I had a mustache, but um, <laughs> no, I like the mustache. I, I was like, yeah, yeah, mustache. But you know that. So that's that's kind of the whole purpose of this and Skype the scientist and having scientists visit the classrooms is like, yeah, there's scientists from. We all are different, and scientists have different interests outside of science, and we're all interested in different kinds of science. And I think what's being pushed now is. To be a scientist, it's like you're curious about science and you're pursuing some career involved in that. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not just the, like, the professor. They're scientists in lots of different ways. And the other question is, so I did go to college. I, didn't just ne I almost never talk about it because I honestly forget sometimes. But I did go to college to study mathematics, computer science, and teaching. I was convinced that I was going to be a math teacher, the assistant, uh, you know, coach on the robotics team to help George Washington Carver High School get back to the nationals. I was so specifically on that dream. Um, and I really do, to this day, love math and computer science. I'm just not good at it. <laughs> and when you're not good at it in, in college, you know, that reflects poorly on your GPA and, and you know, yada, yada, yada. But I always had an interest in politics and, you know, serving my community with environmental education was one of those first things that made me realize um, not just public service is important to me, but, but, you know, being connected to my neighbors and doing that through birding was, you know, one of those ways. And now I work at an organization where, where I can literally get paid to bird and get people to care about bird watching. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and the, so we're going to go a little bit over because I have two questions left, but they're pretty mm -hmm. short. Um, is there something that you wish everyone knew about maybe birding? You can get started any day of the week, any minute of the hour, any time of year, and you have something to learn. Whether you've been birding, you know, from, you know, 20 years ago, 20 minutes ago, you got something to learn, you got something to enjoy. And it's definitely something worth being present for. And so I just hope that everybody can find a way to enjoy that. That's awesome. Um, and then the last question, very open, is there something that you wish every, everyone knew about anything? So it's kind of like, I always picture this as like, the fun fact that you want to mm -hmm. share with every, like if you could share with everyone, what would you share? I'm going to answer that question two ways. The first way is, what is something I wish everyone knew that we currently don't know? And that is, how octopus work? 
Like, how do they do camouflage? How do they, you know, like, I want to know, I, I think if everyone knew that, we would just be in a better place. I don't know why, that's just a belief. If I had that answer, I would have totally shared that as a fun fact, but I don't. But I wish everyone knew that. But if there is a fun fact I'm going to leave everyone with, it is something that I've talked about. Um, you know, I actually did a little YouTube video on it. Um, the European starling. European starling, you know, the, the eye roll or vein to some birders. I realize I have, or at least my ancestors have, something very much in common with the European starling. And that is the fact that we were both brought over on ships against our will. And we're both here today. And it's like, huh, that's a fun fact. I, I, you know, I don't know how to develop that more, but I just realized that that was just something we had in common. Yeah. No, that's or at least actually, our ancestors. That's like the beauty of the fun fact. It can anything, mm -hmm. anything you think is cool to kind of end off our uh, meeting with. So that's interesting. Yeah, something to think about. Food for thought. Plenty to eat. <laughs> um, so yeah, it looks like uh thank you everyone for we went a little over, so it seems I mean it's eleven, so I don't want to keep us too long. Um, thank you everyone for being able to come. Thank you, Aaron, for doing all the translating for us today. And thank you, Aaron. You. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about birds. I feel like I yeah, I learned so much about I feel like now I can go out and like better ID more than just a scrub jay in my, on my grill. <laughs> hey, that's a great start though. So I hope you get out and bird more and, you know, contact bird Twitter if you have any birding questions. Yeah, that's true. Anyone, there is a huge community of people very passionate about birding. If you ever have questions, I feel like comment on our social media pages and I bet you birders that follow Skype a Scientist will help you out. Just make sure you put when and where everything is happening because that's always like the thing. People will post a picture of the bird and be like, what is this? And it like, it might be obvious what it is, but like, I don't want to say unless I know where and when it was taken. True. Yeah. Provide some location. Stop. Provide. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And try to make the picture as least blurry as possible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Try to tell the bird to hold still. Yeah. Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> Well, awesome. Um, and I'll leave us at that. Thank you so much for coming on again. And thank you so uh, much for having me. Yeah, I hope you have a good rest of your afternoon. You too. Well, cool. All right. All right. See you, everybody. See ya.